Hello, I'm pleased today to be joined by Michael Behrens. He's a good friend of mine, and he's also an expert birder, um, has done a lot of work studying ornithology. Uh, Michael lives here in Texas. Uh, he splits his time between the coast and the central Texas area here in Austin. Uh, he runs uh, Birding on Broadmead, which he started, um, has done a lot of bird walks um, and local tours, uh, as well as been, had extensive involvement in doing uh, bird counts, data collection, and knows a lot about nature connection from his own personal experiences and some of the other uh, work that he has pursued. So anyway, thank you, Michael, for joining us and um, appreciate your time. And can you tell us uh, a little bit more about your own background and, and how you got into birding? Sure, thanks for the invitation to be on the podcast. Um, so way back in the uh, uh, early 90s, I went to the University of Texas at Austin here. Um, I ended up getting a computer science degree, but uh, along the way, I, uh, I developed an interest in nature and, and zoology, I guess. I, I uh, um, uh, ended up taking a biology course as a non, um, as a uh, science sequence, part of my degree. And uh, ornithology sounded interesting after after that after the intro biology courses, and um, ended up taking um, a zoology course per semester for sort of the second half of my college career there, and learned a lot. And somewhere along the way, also, I uh, uh, while I was in college, I came across uh, Tom Brown Jr.'s book, The Tracker, and that captured my information, captured my imagination, and um, kind of uh, was introduced to those ideas through that through that book. And uh, since then, uh, birds have kind of stuck with me the most over the years. I think that's, uh, and that's not very unusual, I think, with birds because uh, uh, birds occupy this sweet spot of accessibility. You know, they're easy to see in their heat and hear. They're beautiful. Um, most people think they uh, uh, they look and sound beautiful. There, uh, there's a variety of them. There's this just the right amount of variety of them that uh, is challenging to um, to learn them all, uh, but not usually not so challenging as to be uh, too intimidating to most people. You know, um, and um, and you can really see things that birds are doing. You know, they, um, uh, they're they so accessible since uh, one of the reasons they're so easy to see is because this, they have this easy escape route. They can fly, you know, so um, that's one of the reasons you can just walk outside your door and see half, see and hear a half dozen species of birds, but you don't see any reptiles or you don't see any mammals or amphibians. So um, for that reason, I think birds have... Um, have developed the biggest human community around them that's interested in them than other other kinds of animals, and um, and is I guess the same with me. So yeah, it's um, I hadn't really thought of it quite from that perspective, although I've heard John Young say some similar things. But so you're saying it's a great gateway if you're you know not really a nature oriented person or you didn't maybe you grew up in a city and never paid much attention. I mean, I found this to be true, just thinking back on it, it really is an easy way to drop in. Yes, yeah, and um, 
it's, and we have so many resources related to them as well. You know, that's uh, the very first modern field guide, I guess, was a bird field guide made by Roger Tory Peterson. And, um, and we've just been building upon that for decades, you know, and um, now we have uh, technology coming into the picture with eBird and um, uh, assistant apps, you know, to help you learn birds. And uh, so it's, it's just a really, uh, it's, like I said, yeah, it's, it's one of the more accessible areas and it's, uh, um, but you can, there's still um, a lot under the initial surface to, to dig into and challenge you and, and, um, and form, like you said, a, a strong nature connection. So uh, just curious about this and, and people I talk with and uh, been on this podcast and, and just in general, who have an affinity for the things we're talking about um, and connection to nature, et cetera, it always seems to fall into two buckets. Uh, maybe there's a middle ground too, but it's people who grew up very close to nature, you know, ranch kid, farm kid, what have you, or, or maybe just personal interest, or it's somebody who really didn't grow up at all. And then they had an aha moment, you know, took a class like you're saying, and they seem to end up oftentimes in the same place. But your situation when you were a kid, nature, you know, were you around it much? Did your parents, um, you know, try to get you interested in it and it just didn't take or just didn't really have the opportunities? Um, yeah, it was more, I guess, like your the latter description you had. I, I didn't grow up enjoying nature uh, so much. I yeah, I had kind of a typical um, suburban upbringing in the um middle class upbringing in the uh, um, 70s and 80s, I guess. And uh, my parents didn't steer me either direction towards or from nature. And um, I really didn't, uh, I guess it didn't spark my interest on my own until, uh, like I said, when I went to college and got into it at that point in my life. Yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, the other reason I wanted to have you on here is because um, and, and I find this very interesting and, and not very common. You have both a, a scientific background from studying it, but you also have this nature connection background, um, which I, I think is a great mix. On the more science um, side, if you will, can you talk a little bit about, you know, just how much you've been involved, you know, some of the bird counts you've done, or I know you've done some other data collection projects with other species as well, besides birds, but uh, can you just describe those experiences and, you know, how did they benefit you? You know, were they valuable and, and ultimately help, you know, facilitate, you know, where you are today and, and stoked your interest? Yeah, well, you know, I've never really been a scientist conducting uh, experiments or anything, but I've always uh, seen the value of, of collecting data. Um, and I, uh, you know, I've read about the benefits of, of, journaling and you know keeping records for yourself but i was always um i was never all that motivated to keep records if i knew they were just going to sit on my bookshelf you know and just you know maybe i would go look at them again maybe i wouldn't um so i got uh you know i was initially interested in citizen science projects where you know the data i would uh collect would would be contributed to a central source and used you know and, and 
Uh, I guess the first one of those types of things are, are the uh, Christmas bird counts that the National Audubon Society organizes all over the world. I think they're the oldest now uh, known citizen science project, uh, over 100 years old. Um, and they're still very important. They're still going strong. Um, and then when um, Cornell Lab of Ornithology released eBird, um, I got really interested in that because all of a sudden um, I could go out like it was a Christmas bird count every time I went birding, keep a list of all the species and how many of, 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 of each one of those I found. And it would be contributed to a worldwide central database that, um, that I had access to, not only my observations, but summaries of everyone's observations. Um, and, you know, at, you know, it, eBird enabled things like, hey, you know, uh, um, years ago, our local Travis Audubon Society in Austin came up with this um, little seasonality chart of, you know, what birds to expect when during the year. And this was painstakingly compiled, you know, uh, by hand based on uh, bird observations over decades, you know, uh, I guess in the 70s and 80s and and then eBird comes along and all of a sudden you get these types of things automatically and you can pull them up for different counties all over the state and different states, you know, and things. And um, so that really made me uh, uh, value um, the idea of keeping records like that. Uh, plus the other thing eBird does, uh, which wasn't so much a factor with me, is um, a lot of people get into birding as kind of for kind of the uh, collector's uh, attraction where, you know, kind of a collector's mentality of, of uh, they want to build up their life list of species they've seen. And the big year, only, right? Sorry, big year. Big year. Well, <laughs> there's all kinds of different, you know, flavors of it. There's um, uh, yeah, the big year that the, that movie, that book in the movie made famous, but um, birders get into, you know, their total life list of all the species they've seen in their life. How many species have I seen this year? How many species have I seen in my county this year? You know, how many species uh, have I seen from my yard? Um, mm -hmm. There's some crazy, uh, mostly retired birders that have the time to do this in Texas called the, uh, uh, somebody came up with something called the, the, the Texas Century Club, where the goal is to, yeah. Uh, observe 100 species of birds in each in 100 different counties in Texas, you know, and uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think I have the, the, uh, the, uh, I'm not that patient with driving and I don't want to leave that big of a carbon footprint. But, <laughs> um, but that it just goes to show you, you know, there's, there's a lot of this drive, that kind of drive in the birding world as well. And eBird really served that because it, organizes all your lists and it mm. keeps all the keep you know it um you can keep your list on paper and submit it on their website or now they have an app that makes it easy to keep track of to keep your list in the field and it already knows where you are and um, what time of the year it is and what county you're in and uh, puts that all in the right place in their database so that um not only are you contributing to this worldwide knowledge and database of, of, of bird, um, uh, uh, bird frequency, but, um, 
it's also feeding this organizational desire that a lot of birders have to to maintain all these different kinds of lists. Yeah, so I'm not going to ask you like how big your life list is. Um, I don't actually have one. If I did, I'm, it would embarrass me. But I know you've been doing this a long time. But do you have one or or maybe two? But let's just say one. Really, just experience it kind of mind blowing in terms of seeing a species or something you didn't expect. Is there anything that comes to mind? You know that you look back on and go, "Wow, that that was that was it." It's hard to top that moment. Um. Not just one or two that stand out, but um, there was this period um, after I bought uh, a house here in Austin in 2004, um, and um, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been looking around for a, you know, a really bird-friendly area, um, but I kind of got lucky and bought a house in the neighborhood that was a good bird-friendly uh, area, and I. Um, I started intensely uh, birding my neighborhood once I was discovering this because I was excited about finding, you know, uh, more birds than I expected in um, in my neighborhood. And um, eventually, I started to find rarities, um, uh, like a lazuli bunting, just a brief glance, or a yellow-headed blackbird, and and um, and it uh, it made kind of a subconscious or irrational impression on me, you know, that because up until that point in my birding, um, I knew these birds were possible, that, that these birds, you know, passed through during migration. Occasionally, they could be found here, but um, I had never found them. You know, I would read reports of other people that had found them, maybe occasionally go try to find a bird that someone else, a rare bird that someone else had found and reported somewhere. But until I started intensely birding, you know, my home patch um, uh, and finding these birds myself, it really, that's when it finally like sunk into my consciousness more that what, how, what diversity was all around us, you know, and what uh, I'm, I'm occasionally seeing these things and how many things am I missing, you know? Mm. Um, and so that, uh, that kind of like changed my perception of reality a little bit and, and um, changed my mentality enough. So that's, yeah, it wasn't just one or two experience, but it was, it was just like that time period of like 2005 to seven or somewhere in there or 2005 to 2008, maybe that I uh, kind of, um, kind of cleaned up all my hobbies and kind of shook it things up and just pared things down and started intensely birding more and uh, uh, was able to experience that sort of shift. Yeah, oh, that's that's awesome. And I think if, if I remember correctly, um, at some point in that time frame or thereafter is when you started leading uh, bird walks, right? And during some tours at local preserves and which I find is great because a you know a lot, um, but it's also just great to be out with other people and get to share your knowledge and learn together. So, do you have any comments about that in terms of you know those experiences and and what leading those walks are like, and both for you and, and the people on them? Yeah, so that came from uh, the same kind of you know my kind of evoked my sense of wonder at all these birds I was finding in my neighborhood. Um, 
you know, and, and I didn't have to um, travel to some exotic location or anything. These birds were, were appearing here um, just where I already was. And I wanted, I wanted more neighbors to know about this. You know, I had encountered like one other birding couple in the neighborhood, you know, walking by with binoculars that I went and say, hey, met them, you know. And, um, so through the neighborhood association, I started leading a monthly um, bird walk on um, in an area of playing fields that eventually became Lake Creek Trail in Northwest Austin and Williamson County. Um, the county eventually built a sidewalk trail uh, that goes along uh, Lake Creek, um, which is um, a little creek that doesn't go dry anymore because it, uh, it's fed by a wastewater treatment plant on the other side of the highway. <laughs> and um, despite that, you know, the creek is always full of uh, fish and turtles. And um, there's yeah, it's nutrient rich, yeah. right? I've right. Been, yeah. I've been on walks with you and it's amazing how many shorebirds you get and, you know, who come because it's always got um, food for them, it seems like. Yeah, and it has it not only has some shorebird habitat, um, which is uh, seems to be mostly used when during drought conditions when the shorebirds can't find other mm. you know bigger patches of habitat, uh, but there's also patches of riparian woods uh, with you know some dense undergrowth that type of thing people don't like to leave in their yards you know but that's a whole nother category of habitat with different species of birds that that enjoy that um, there's a uh, then the playing fields themselves, you know, is uh, uh, can be a, a more open type of habitat. There's open sky available. So it's been, um, so those bird walks eventually grew and they kind of grew uh, into, um, uh, by word of mouth, uh, they became less of a neighborhood thing and more of sort of an existing birder thing. Um, where I was still getting a few people from the neighborhood, but some, you know, there were some people, there was a, a retired couple that would drive up from Wimberley to Northwest Austin to go to my bird walk. And, um, and um, that uh, uh, was a really good experience for me. Um, I liked it. I think it was a good experience for the people on the walks because it was a popular uh, walk. Um, and I always got good feedback, uh, but it was also sort of the next phase in uh, in learning for me too. Um, you know, one thing um, when I started using eBird, that maybe made me a better birder because it made me look at every bird. It made you know, it made me uh, optimize uh, identification um, and uh, really kind of you know, uh, embrace the idea of, hey, you know, you don't necessarily have to look at your, at a bird through binoculars to identify it. You can see a lot with your naked eye. You can hear a lot. Um, and uh, so that developed, you know, that overall ID skill. And then leading the bird walks uh, kind of shook that up because, you know, that sort of learning was kind of going towards the more just the the gestalt type of identification where you take all of the everything in at once and and your brain identifies it you know first kind of the first stage in identifying birds is learning a list of field marks to go through you know and then you do that enough 
And then after a while, your brain just recognizes the whole bird by itself. You know, it, it wants sort of like we recognize our faces, each other's faces. Um, when you get into that and you start to forget the other, the field marks. And so then leading the bird walks, uh, uh, people would ask, well, how do you know it's that? Um, and uh, you, it makes you kind of relearn, you know, see, see how they're seeing the bird again. Um, and uh, kind of brings those two, you know, identification skills together again, refreshes the other one. And it kind of makes you confront your ego as well, you know, because there's this little voice, you know, well, how do you know it's that? I know I've been birding a long time. <laughs> yeah, my AI algorithm in here, it's like it's it's calculated. This. It can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it keeps you humble because you're wrong sometimes and, and you have to be okay with being wrong in front of, you know, a dozen people. And, and then there's still some times where still happens to me where um, everybody in the group is looking at a bird asking me what it is and I haven't found it yet, you know? <laughs> so. Um, well, I can so attest not much gets by and you're not wrong very often. It's amazing <laughs> what you see and hear. <laughs> so. Yeah. So. Um, so leading those bird walks was very much the kind of the next stage in my own learning. And I think that's kind of a general principle too, is, you know, once you get to some point in learning a subject, you teach it. And that's kind of the next phase. One of my first jobs, I had to be a trainer and um, on a pretty complex software product. And I was so nervous, but that's actually how I learned it was by training. Yeah. <laughs> so what is this? I don't know. Uh, let me go find out. <laughs> so yeah, there's a little bit of pressure there too when you know, especially if it's your job. Yeah, yeah, and they're paying so, for it. But yeah, no, yeah. it is. It's it's an incredible way of learning. Um, and you know, I know we could um, kind of go in fifty thousand different directions um, with our remaining time on birding, but I wanted to focus since we're in May and you know we're right in the midst of migration if we could talk about that, because I, I think it's a great time if someone's new to birding, even if you're not, there's just so much going on to pick up on. So maybe if you don't mind kind of just describing or explaining, particularly those who haven't done much birding, you know, what migration is and, you know, and, and why is it important, both from a ecological standpoint and, you know, as we we're discussing earlier, you know, if you're out there, you know, looking for birds and trying to learn, observe, um, you know, why, why should we care? Why is it important or interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, birds, um, again, going back to, um, the idea of, Hey, why are birds so easy to see? You know, they have this easy escape route. They can fly. They're so mobile, um, not only in short distances, but in long distances. And so, uh, somehow, um, migration evolved, uh, and migration is mostly uh, um, moving from a se seasonal movement of birds at a large scale, uh, you know, at a hemispherical, sometimes global scale, uh, where birds are um, usually moving someplace during the spring that uh, for the, where they breed, um, where they nest and breed. And then after breeding is over, uh, moving someplace during the fall to spend the winter. And um, 
the uh, temperature is linked in with this, you know, that um, in the uh, birds will um, come north from, so in, in our, in our, you know, in the, in the Americas, um, a lot of most migratory birds, they're spending their winters down south in central South America, although for some birds, Texas is south. Um, and, um, and, you know, the winters don't get as cold. Um, and, or, you know, it's not winter, it's, you know, the seasons are flipped around. Um, and so, um, or they're in the tropics where really there is, the, you know, the, it, it doesn't get uh, very cold very often. Um, and then they go, um, when the weather is warm enough up north, they'll travel up there to, to breed. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a huge expenditure of energy. Um, uh, and you have to wonder, well, why? Why are they doing this? Why did this evolve as a successful strategy? And um, I don't know for certain the, 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 what the, the theory that made sense to me that I learned way back in college was that um, in the tropical environments, like Central, Northern, South America, um, uh, once birds reach adulthood, uh, life is pretty easy. Um, you know, there's plenty of fruit and, and things to, to eat. Um, uh, but um, nesting success is, is very low. Um, and I think that's part of the reason you see such extreme sexual selection, uh, sex, uh, sexual dimorphism in tropical birds. You know, see the, you mm. see these amazing elaborate male birds with tra long trailing crazy feathers and the females are very cryptic um, because the females are the ones on the nest, you know, and there's just a lot of nest predation um, in the tropics. Um, so somehow, you know, birds being so mobile uh, and just random experimentation and variation uh, evolutionary urges, I guess, somehow uh, they figured some species figured out how to, uh, uh, how to breed in another place where, where it, was a, it was a little easier and it was, they would find places in North America um, and time, time things so that just as they were arriving to breed, it was getting warmer and there'd be this huge emergence of insect life, you know? Um, and so um, those combination of factors, I think are what kind of led to migration. Um, as being something beneficial to these birds and and um uh but it's you know it's really risky um a lot of uh little birds that you wouldn't think about actually um uh when they're migrating north um uh to the breeding grounds there's pressure to get their fat the first and get your pick of the best breeding grounds and so they'll cut across stretches of the Gulf of Mexico um, and uh, hit, um, uh, and depending on the weather conditions, um, you know, they'll wait for good conditions. They'll wait for a tailwind, you know, a south wind behind them uh, to take them across. But, um, you know, weather in Texas is really dynamic in the spring and you get all these cold fronts coming through and and sometimes the the weather the wind turns around on them while they're out there over the Gulf, and makes it a much more difficult journey. And and 
a lot of them don't make it. And the ones that are, are tired, that the ones that do make it are tired and, and want to find the first patch of habitat they can when they hit the coast and rest there. Um, and um, those difficult conditions on the birds make for some amazing bird watching conditions, you know, just like life changing bird watching conditions. And um, especially if you have a front come through, right. And uh, right. fallouts, I think they'll just. Like right. It. And I think what the, what we call a fallout these days is nothing like what people used to see, like in the sixties and seventies and, and even before mm -hmm. that, you know, um, uh, but it's still just. Uh, just because there were more birds then. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, but it still can be, it's still can, it's, it's an amazing experience. Um, and, uh, people come from all over the country to the Texas coast at the, this time of year to, to experience this, you know, even from other countries, bird watchers will come to, uh, and, and there's, you know, birds are just funneling through the Texas coast. Uh, on their way to spread out over North America and even up into Canada, you know, and there are, there are little birds that, that make these amazing journeys. You know, a lot of them just maybe go from, you know, Central America, Mexico, uh, up into, you know, Texas and in mid, you know, the middle States. Um, but some of them are coming from south america from like central southern south america and going all the way up to the arctic you know that yeah, they say they talk about the, the wildebeest okay. being the, the largest migration but it's kind of pales in comparison to the bird migration doesn't it in terms of um you know distance and probably overall number and i, I can't remember if you told me this or someone else but i remember someone saying during one of these fallouts you had a big cold front that on an oak tree right there on the coast i think they saw 12 different species of warblers i think in one tree something just incredible <laughs> so yeah it's it's really amazing um and i'm glad i'm glad i've got to see that you know as many times as i have not not a whole lot of times because if that if you don't get that wind turning around if the birds still have that sit tailwind out of the south they'll hit the coast and keep going yeah and the coast can be a pretty boring place you know um it's just, you know, being at the right place at the right time during those weather conditions that can be this amazing bird observation experience. Um, I remember but, one year I was down there, I think, doing a wildlife tracking eval or something at, um, at Laguna Atascosa, Ocelot Preserve, and one of these fronts, kind of unexpected, came in it was right during this time, and I just so wanted you know, as much as I was interested in tracking, I wanted to just take off and go because I've never seen one of these, you know, big fallouts. I just wanted to drive the extra hour and, and go check it out because I'd heard some, yeah. you know, incredible things about it. So um, that's, that's yeah. really interesting. And I wanted to ask you, um, uh, please continue on, but I, I wanted to interject one thing about, you know, really interesting about why birds come up here. And, and there's different strategies too, right? In terms of, uh, I know there's the scientific term, I can't think of off the top of my head, but uh, success strategies about getting earlier versus later. Like you said earlier, you get to, you know, your territory first, you have more food, but there's more danger, right? Because of the cold weather in particular. Right. You're not, they're not, they, there's no guarantees that, you know, the earlier they get there, there still might be a freeze, you know, that comes in and, 
So yeah. even within the same species, they'll adopt different strategies in terms of, you know, when they get there, there may be some individuals get there sooner rather than later. Um, probably. Um, I hadn't thought about that so much, but that makes me, that reminds me that even within one species of birds, there are different populations that migrate and don't migrate. Mm, so, yeah. um, mm -hmm. uh, like in, in, in Austin, we have turkey vultures and some of our turkey vultures are here year round. Um, but, uh, turkey vultures are migrating too. And this time of year, if you look up in the sky and you see, you know, 20, 30 turkey vultures drifting South, those are not our year round resident turkey vultures. Those are, um, migratory ones, you know, that have been coming from the Northern States and are just passing through it's same species, different um, populations and, and, uh, and strategies, I guess. It's pretty yeah, amazing. I think I remember reading something recently last year or two about monarchs even do that. I think there's a population that doesn't make it all the way down to Mexico, just stays in Arizona. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it's fascinating, but anyway, uh, other species, different species will adopt different strategies then, right? And I, I guess obviously find the one that works the best for them or the ones who are most successful will continue reproducing. Yeah. And one of the neat things about migration is that it's not a physical trait. You know, it's a behavior that, that has a potential to change much more rapidly than, you know, an actual physical trait. So, um, you know, it's, it's that so like adapting see, to the climate changing, right? Potentially. Right. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Mm. Um, and also just taking advantage of, of different habitat types as pressure develops, you know, mm. um, uh, you know, you probably heard about white winged doves. You used to have to go down to the Rio Grande Valley to see a white winged dove 60, 70 years ago or 50 years ago, even. And, and uh, now they're the most numerous bird in my, North yeah. Austin neighborhood. Same here. They, yeah, they 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 were experiencing habitat loss down in the Rio Grande Valley, mm. and they figured out the trick to living in neighborhoods, and stopped migrating and started just expanding their range northward in neighborhoods, and hmm. uh, and that worked out really well for them. Yeah, there's there's another thing too, which um, I wanted to ask you about. And I, I take my daughter out there. My son's too young, but, you know, try to watch the migration. In fact, last week, we just saw this huge number of seagulls uh, passing through. Uh, I think it was the laughing gull, if I remember correctly. And, you know, a lot of other species as well. But it seems to be, you know, different every year to some extent. And and I know there's the different flyways. I ain't talking about that. But do those alternate based on conditions and weather or, you know, and or timings from year to year, or is it pretty much the same every year? Oh gosh. You know, the, the concentrations just depend on the weather conditions. Like when I say concentrations, I, you know, when you run into a group of birds, um, like a high diversity um, uh, group of birds during migration, that's just dependent on, Hey, those birds encountered some difficult weather conditions, and so they're stacking up and and waiting out a storm or something in a in a patch of habitat. Um, but um, you know, a lot of the timing doesn't change very much. A lot of different species 
very consistently show up in different time periods in different places every year. Uh, and that's where you can look at those at um, those eBird um, those eBird bar charts of seasonality and see um, you know when start people see the first uh, ruby crown kinglet you know in the um, in the fall you know or uh, when the when people see the first uh, or hear the first Acadian flycatcher in spring you know a lot of those species very consistently the first ones show up at the on the same in the same narrow date ranges it's mm. it's really interesting and you mentioned the the laughing gulls those were probably actually uh franklin's gulls yeah i'm sorry that's right yeah. they were franklin yeah. that's right and the laughing gulls are the resident year-round coastal species yeah. um franklin's gulls are one of those long distance migrants that winters in the west coast of south america and breeds up in like the northern states and Canada in, in the inland lakes and stuff. And it's, yeah, there's nothing like, you know, walking around in Austin and all of a sudden you hear seagulls. Yeah. And you look up and you I mean, see we a saw several hundred of them. <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> you feel like you're on the coast. Yeah. And it was interesting. Some of the, other, well, this gets in a little bird language, but some of the other ones were uh, some of the other birds on the ground. It's interesting watching their reactions and, um, you could tell that they were cautious. They changed their behavior and, and, and the other birds, I think caused that too, but it's just interesting observing the whole spectacle, you know, both from just the magnificence of it, as well as just how it changes everything. And actually you, you brought up something I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, besides, I think to the kind of novice, and this is the way I, I thought of it, that, the difference between spring and fall migration just kind of reverse is, is that true or it's actually more nuanced that, and how do they kind of interface, um, you know, the same birds that, you know, come first, you know, leave last or, or do they leave first? How does that work? Is there any rhyme or reason to that? Um, there's sort of a general uh, tendencies that spring migration is more urgent and it's more concentrated in, in a shorter period of time, you know, okay. whereas because there's that advantage to getting to the breeding ground sooner um, and taking advantage of the time to um, to reproduce, very important thing birds have to do. Um, fall migration, they're, they're done breeding. Um, uh, some birds then will take that opportunity to, to um, molt to replace a lot of their feathers. Um, and then heading south is more laid back. It's more spread out over time. Um, the birds can be a little more uh, cryptic, a little more um, harder to see. They're just passing through uh, uh, a little more slowly on their way to get to the, you know, their wintering grounds. Um, so that's, Kind of the general idea. They don't have to take as many risks, right? Because again, the urgency is not there. So, right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the things I find interesting too is, you know, a lot of people when I first started tuning into this, very interested in, you know, songbirds and which they are, and there's so many varieties and they're beautiful. But as I got more and more into bird language and, and then started teaching it, I became fascinated by the raptor migration and 
I noticed particularly where we live, in fact, I, I just finished a semester teaching bird language at University of Florida. And here, you know, in Texas, our raptor population, I don't have the numbers and, and you might, but it just seems like it explodes, particularly among occipiters, you know, numbers of Cooper's hawks in this area. And so from a bird language perspective, I find it a really interesting time because in many respects, the resident birds here, and, and I'm sure the ones that are migrating through, it becomes a very dangerous time because the, the density, you know, of these bird killers, these exhibitors who are specialists in hunting birds, as well as other hawks, goes way up. And so I actually really enjoy when the fall migration is finished, because even though a lot of people think it's kind of a downtime year for birding, um, at least here it picks up. Now that's not true up north. In fact, I had a student point out he uh, was taking the class remotely in Massachusetts. And he's like, well, most of our raptors left. So a lot of these right, things yeah. I'm starting to see now, right? Um, you know, you can't please everybody. But um, anyway, I just, that was a real eye opener when I started, you know, observing that. And, you know. Yeah. And, um, and um, that kind of uh, links into, um, the changing of priorities in birds' lives through the seat through through throughout the year, you know, uh, where in the winter time and and um, here in Texas, you know, I, I mentioned before, we're north for some birds, we're south for some birds, uh, so we don't have and we and then we have year-round birds too. So it's all winter long, we have our year-round birds, and we have a group of winter resident birds which includes some of the predators like you're talking about, like sharp-shinned hawks, more Cooper's hawks, uh, three kinds of falcons. Um, and so um, their prey, you know, there's these little songbirds uh, grouped together in these mixed species foraging flocks and are watching for these predators and, and making call notes to each other across species and making alarm calls to each other across species. And that's really one of, that's, um, I love birding in the winter for that reason, because, you know, your pet, everything can be just dead in the woods and then you'll hear some really soft contact calls and then your path crosses with one of these mixed foraging flocks moving around in the woods. And all of a sudden, you know, there's six or eight species of birds, you know, and it's uh, it's really a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah it's, it's awesome. I mean, I see so many more alarms. I mean, probably like four or five times as many, even though, you know, the overall bird activity is less, certainly song and, you know, even the feeding because they're not having to feed young anymore. It's, it's just incredible. I, I really enjoy it. I know most people kind of think of it as an off time of year, but I, I don't look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. And like you said, it's a different story in some of the Northern States in Canada. Um, but uh, another uh, things are kind of changing in the summer, in the spring and the summer here. Um, in just in the last uh, less than 10 years, uh, more hawks are using neighborhoods in Austin. And I've, I've read that it's a more general phenomenon as well. You know, maybe enough time has gone by finally where, you know, hawks, it used to be for a long time, uh, hawks saw a person, that person wanted to shoot it, you know, yeah. uh, and maybe it's, Maybe that's shifted enough that um, now, um, just in like in the past less than 10 years, there are uh, more Cooper's hawks here in the summer nesting in, in neighborhoods here. There are broad-winged hawks, one of the migratory 
spectacularly migratory species of hawks um, that uh, that nest one nested in my front yard a couple of years ago. Um, and now there are also Mississippi kites nesting in neighborhoods all over town. Um, uh, they're around my yard every day, you know, the past month or so since they started arriving again. And um, so it's, you know, it's something new that's happening. Um, and, and I'm hopeful, um, you know, neighborhoods are one of those, well, habitat types that's actually growing. And if we could get enough people to appreciate that and and make some tweaks to make them even more, you know, attractive to birds and maybe try to convince more people that, uh, you know, your homogenous lawn isn't the most beautiful, aesthetically pleasing thing in the world, you know, that let's get, you know, have some undergrowth in your yard, more native plant species and stuff. It's, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of hope for neighborhoods as a, as a habitat type for birds and other wildlife. This is just kind of a side note, but my neighbors may not like me for this, although I've got a fence around my property. But yeah, I, I let my yard kind of go feral this year and uh, and intentionally let native grass move in over the last several years. And I've got pretty deep topsoil, but it's amazing. Just not, I don't know about so much increase in bird activity, but, you know, insects, but I've got just a tremendous amount of fireflies. And we have had a lot of rain this spring so far, but it's amazing when you do a few things like that, you know, you can create better habitat, which benefits everybody. And of course, on the other hand, I, I totally agree with you. In fact, when I was a kid in my parents' small town, a couple of hours west of here, I mean, we hardly ever saw red shoulder hawks in town and now they're all yeah. over the place, you know? Um, yeah, but, they're a year round resident. Yeah, oh. yeah, I, I feel, you know, but usually, like you said, they were skittish. You know, they seem to be much more skittish. I mean, I don't have the actual data, but I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. I, I feel sorry for the poor songbirds because obviously they, they take a hit. Um, and, you know, some of my students would be saying, oh, I saw a couple of hawks or even kites. And, you know, I noticed, you know, songbirds got quiet and they're like, but I think it might have been because the neighbor's dog started barking. I'm like, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, these guys are killers, you know, it probably has more to do with yeah. that. Yeah, I have a neighbor who has a couple photos of Mississippi kite carrying a purple martin in its tail. Yeah, but, I, I had a student um, do exactly. She goes, I saw two. I think they were, um, was it long tail kites? And, uh, you know, was saying, oh, you know, I think it was a lawnmower. And I'm like, man, those things are incredibly maneuverable. You, you know, as you know, I, I've watched them actually Mississippi kites catch dragonflies, which I mean, that's yeah, yeah. an extraordinary feat of athleticism you know so i can only imagine how birds view that and and actually i think that's that's a good um segue into this whole aspect of your own journey if you don't mind talking about it how getting into birding and migration and things we've been talking about and, and bird language has facilitated you know your own nature connection and, and the way you view nature and your relation to it if you can comment on that yeah, well, I mean, I think the obvious thing is that just all these other aspects that come into play make everything more engaging, more immersive. Um, uh, you know, it's it's when you start to uh, realize the seasonality of birds um, and their different priorities through the year, and you start to observe that, you know, and see 
uh, the ramifications of that in the birds' actions and reactions. Um, that's just satisfying. It's 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 uh, it, uh, it 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 connects you with that aspect of nature uh, uh, more directly than than you had before. Um, uh, and that uh, th that makes me think about you know getting into birding by ear more and more too is uh, bringing another sense into play. Um, is uh makes it that much more engaging and immersive um and um as you um when you get to when you get to a level where you can see a lot of these things happening um you can um you can go outside for a very short period of time and see something satisfying and meaningful or observes, you know, some reaction to birds, um, which just makes life easier to deal with. You know, it's like, uh, um, there's this, uh, there's this inherent desire in, in most people. Some people think all people, you know, to have this connection with nature. Um, and there's, there's kind of a, a lack of, uh, understanding of how to make that connection you know um uh and john john graves uh wrote a book called goodbye to a river um yeah uh i think brazos. it was about the brazos river yeah, yeah he, mm -hmm. at the time in the 50s when he wrote the book there were plans to dam it and he had spent a lot of his childhood there and he made a uh, a uh uh, like a month long camping trip on it via canoe down the river. And he wrote about it and, um, and he, he really captured well is it's um, he has this quote that describes, you know, um, there's this desire to be, to have nature as this important factor in our lives, but our number one priority always has to be the layer of, of existence we've built on top of that, you know, he calls it like prickly machine humming uh, world that we've built on top of nature. And that has to be our number one priority to, you have to pay your, pay your rent, you know, you have to um, uh, deal with the, you know, get your driver's license renewed, all this, you know, uh, do your job, uh, all the, these multitudinous things um, so that uh, appreciation uh, of nature uh, and learning about it and studying it has to take a, a lower priority. And um, but I think birds really optimize that lower priority place, you know, in our lives. Um, uh, just because you know, I've already said how accessible they are. They occupy the sweet spot of of um, being able to see them just about anywhere you are, hear them. Um, and then once you're, if you have, are able to invest the time to get more in tune with them, the seasonality, their, their priorities throughout the year, you can just, you know, go outside for five or 10 minutes in the morning um, and see something, you know, um, and take that bat with you, you know, uh, and uh, that's really, satisfying thing to do you know you didn't have to um 
drive anywhere. You didn't have to invest a, a whole morning or day, you know, hiking somewhere. Uh, there's just this accessibility of, of nature connection that birds make for us um, uh, in these little snippets of time. Um, uh, like, I think it was one, um, it was last fall, I think. Um, I went out for a few minutes with my cup of coffee before I started work in the morning. Um, and like in my neighbor's backyard behind me, I heard a little a blue-gray gnatcatcher uh, call. And then, uh, and that was to the south. And then to the north, I saw, or I heard another, you know, and these two blue-gray gnatcatchers came from the north. And this one behind me came up and joined them. And the three of them, you know, continued in their way south. Um, and I thought, had they already been together, you know, had had these two been together and this third one hooked up with them, you know, this little bright is in that, you know, 30 seconds I was there to 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 uh to see it and, and experience it. It's uh cool stuff out there. Yeah, I that's great. Um and uh yeah, when you were talking about goodbye to a river, uh Don Henley wrote a song on that um uh, about the book. And really, uh, wow. Yeah. He, you know, he grew up in North Texas. I, I think he lives up there again now, uh, his old dad's farm or something. But uh, yeah, it's very Edward uh, Abbey-esque, you know, which okay. I think, you know, Desert Solitaire. I remember when you were talking about that and I read that. And John novel. Graves is a little more laid back than Edward. Yeah, Abbey. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he was talking about going down the, the Colorado River right before I believe his Glen Canyon Dam was built, you hmm. know, and I think those are those are questions for our, our time about, yeah, you know, we can't go back to stone age, obviously we're not going to, but you know, how do we not only protect what we have, but how do we engage with it and give it, you know, Aldo Leopold talked about this extensively, give it the value it deserves and participate in it because I'm of the belief and you were saying this, I think in in a way it's in our DNA, everybody. And it, it's good for us. I, I just literally had a student uh, write me um, as the semester ended. I always have them do, they have a final project and they have to do like a research proposal. And also they, they have to do a, uh, kind of a group experiment or a group sit and uh, record those. But then they also have a final reflection, which is really just their time to opine, you know, what they learned. And, you know, in terms of what they pick up on bird language, uh, you know, it's, you can tell it's most of them are still kind of early stages and what they observe and that's fine. But the thing that I'm really impressed and really glad is they got across the idea of just the nature connection. And I don't know if it's the right word, but being able to empathize with birds and observe them and understand, you know, not only struggles, but just their life and paying attention to it. And not only is that good, I think, for birds and on the long term of us, you know, having because I'm again, I'm firm belief that the more you identify with nature or connect with it, the more you want to protect it. But it's good for us as well. And I had a couple of students, one in particular said that, you know, she was going through some depression, anxiety, and that literally just going out and doing bird sits, it, it made a profound impact on her. You know, mm, yeah, it's, it's there's a whole area of therapy being developed called ecotherapy. Yeah. Um, I, last time I was at my doctor, I saw um, a little flyer on the wall. Ask about a nature prescription. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. 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 That uh, sounds like a Bill Murray line I think yeah. <laughs> about Bob, a prescription to take a vacation from your problems. But no, it's it's true. And I, I think you sent me something about a, it was on NPR, something about fly fishing and a, and a woman who had chronicled. Um, and so there's a number of different ways. I, I think birds is, and I know John Young believes this, is one of the very best ways of, of doing that because all the reasons you describe the accessibility, um, you know, the fact we can see them and, you know, just all their behaviors. So, well, with our remaining time, I wanted to just um, ask you, because you've already alluded to it um, with eBird, but can you talk about for people who, you know, maybe again are just getting into it, or even if they've been doing this for a while, the best ways of using technology um, and, and, and technology can even be binoculars, but in this case, probably more talking about, you know, online tools, applications, also the pros and cons of it, when to use it, when not, and what are some of your favorites? I know you mentioned eBird, but what are some of your other favorite tools that you would recommend to people that, that won't be, I'm big about not being overwhelmed. I just wrote a blog recently about, you know, kind of putting your smartphone down when you're outside, but at the same time, they can be very powerful learning mechanisms. So, you know, I think you're a good person to understand the balance between those two. So if you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah. I love technology. <laughs> and right. if you, uh, if you uh, said to me, okay, you have to, uh, you have a choice. You have to get rid of your binoculars or your iPhone, which is it going to be? That would, that would be a tough decision for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, back in 2007, the first iPhone came out and what finally pushed me over the edge to, to get one was a product uh, called BirdPod, um, which was sort of an app before there were even apps. Uh, and it was originally made to put on an iPod. Um, and when the iPhone came out, it was also an iPod. Um, and this company had taken the uh, a four CD set of North American bird sounds and songs and had figured out how to put it onto an iPod um, in a way where each bird had its own track and they skipped over the person announcing each bird. Like remember those old bird tapes and stuff where um, even on CD, one track would have like two or three or four birds and there'd be uh, somebody announcing Northern Cardinal and then yeah. there'd be, you know, there'd be yeah. the Cardinal song. So they, you know, the iPod was revolutionary in a lot of ways. You could navigate through your music so fast. And, and so, um, uh, so when the iPhone came out, it also had a little built-in speaker and I could put this, iP this bird pod product on it and have this out in the field with me and hear some birds, hear a bird, make some guesses as to what it was on my iPhone, pull it up pretty quickly and compare it to the recordings. And that was a game changer for um, my birding by ear, you know, and, and learning um, uh, bird sounds. Uh, so that was, you know, one of the one of the big boosts that technology gave me, uh, even out in the field. And um, I already talked about eBird making me a better birder and facilitating just the citizen science of collection of data from, you know, worldwide, the whole birding community. Um, I, uh, as, um, 
part of my enthusiasm for birding in my neighborhood um, when I was doing my bird walks, getting those started, I got into photography um, with the uh, motivation of documenting, you know, these birds I was finding. And, um, you know, especially if, if I built up some skill with the camera being able to capture identifiable pictures of birds, not only can I share them on a blog, you know, make neighbors more aware, but I can document rare species that show up, you know, and, and, and local, you know, rare bird alert uh, committees will be a lot, you know, more likely to accept a photo than a written description, you know, especially from a, a birder that doesn't have an established, you know, reputation for um, uh, identification skill. Um, and, um, and now, you know, photography has just gotten um, better and better. Uh, you can get, uh, you know, there's still some, some monetary investment required, uh, but you can get uh, cameras. And unfortunately, your smartphone camera usually doesn't work, uh, but you can get cameras where it's easier and easier with big zooms on them. And it's easier and easier to get at least an identifiable picture of a bird. Um, and some people get into birding that way. They're taking pictures of birds before they know what the birds are. And then they go home and figure out what the bird is. Um, and that's where tools the, like Merlin now, um, you know, obviously both by song and also by photo can help. Right. So you don't right, even have to yeah. wait till you get home. Right. Yeah. If you can feed the picture into the app. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, some people, you, you can take a picture of it on the screen on the back of your camera, maybe. Um, but, the, you know, the, the photography can also, you know, uh, become kind of a burden. Um, I'm kind of been taking a break from it recently for the past year or so, uh, just because it's so easy to go out there and take a bunch of pictures. And then, um, well, if you want those pictures to, to contribute to something, you know, to be more data that for eBird or, or you know, more observations for iNaturalist, you have to process them. You know, you have to spend time in front of your computer at home to deal with them and put them in all the places, edit them, put them in all the places you want them to live. Um, and that can be kind of a, that, that's been kind of a psychic burden on me in the last, uh, recently in the past year or so. So I've been going out a lot just my, without my camera lately, just uh, um, to get back to just that enjoyment in the moment too, you know, it can, um, it can take a little bit of that away if you're wor more worried about getting a photo of a bird than you are of, of seeing it and experiencing it yourself. Um, so uh, I talked about eBird before I mentioned iNaturalist just now. Um, iNaturalist is a really interesting platform that's now, um, it's uh, hosted by the California Academy of Sciences. Um, it's sort of structured like um, Facebook, uh, but you know how Facebook has at its center, you have a status update. Um, you say, you tell the world, hey, what, you know, what's going on? And people who follow you see that and they com can comment on it. And um, people keep in touch with each other that way. Well, uh, iNaturalist has at its basis, the nature observation. 
usually with a photo, uh, but it can also be a sound. Um, and um, you post these nature observations in a Facebook-like format and people who follow you or people who are follow a certain subset of taxon taxonomy that you posted something in uh, can find it and uh, post comments on it, but also post identifications to it. Um, and, of, and I, you know, eBird is just birds. iNaturalist is plants and animals uh, of all kinds all over the world. Um, and, um, and so they have this sort of crowd, different, different crowdsourcing technique of uh, once enough people agree on an identification of, you know, my observation, it's considered research grade, you know, and they have the, you can filter on just research grade observations and you'll have a little bit more of a confidence that, you know, at least some people agree on them and it won't be as, you know, randomly incorrect um, as otherwise. And, um, and you can also post observations that you don't know what it is yet um, and have people, you know, contribute and, and figure out what, what, uh, what things are in that way. And they, and they have various ways of presenting this observational data. You can define geographical places and then see all the observations in that place uh, organized by, you know, um, taxonomically, you know, and, um, and um, what's really interesting is that the two platforms have these different uh, mission statements. E you know, eBird's mission is about harnessing the birding community to learn more about birds, you know, and uh, learn more about bird distribution, especially. Um, and iNaturalist, if you look up there, mission. Um, data collection is part of their mission, but their number one priority is connecting people with nature. And um, and that, you know, that's resulted in their different user interface, you know, they're more of a uh, social network. Um, and um, I've just been realizing the past year or so, uh, talking to more people involved, um, there's a uh, monthly naturalist happy hour around Austin that a friend of mine organizes. And, and these, uh, a few people have been showing up that aren't really in the birding community. They aren't part of the local master naturalists. They're iNatters. They call them iNaturalist users, iNatters. And um, they're kind of a different personality type. They want to dive into these details and see as many different things, you know, and catalog them as they can. And they organize what they call these bio blitzes on iNaturalist. Um, uh, you know, where they meet, you know, there'll be a day where a bunch of iNat users meet at some area uh, that maybe doesn't have a whole lot of observations yet. And they just spend a day just going crazy making iNaturalist observations in whatever areas they specialize in and build up data for that area, you know. Um, so that, you know, that's, those are two big um, technology platforms that are really contributing in, in these different, sometimes complementary ways to, um, to, you know, knowledge and, and, and even nature connection as well. Well, that's great. Thank you. Let's wrap up here. I have a question for you. I think you're maybe the perfect person to answer this. <laughs> um, 
what do you see coming and and with that i know you could probably talk for 45 minutes on this but just in you know a minute or two what do you see coming down the pike i mentioned merlin earlier i, I had students use it I, I think it's a really useful tool it's an app on the iphone people out there and it will identify does pretty good job depending on the you know how well the audio registers um, how loud it is clear it is identifying a bird and, and by pictures as well like um, you said if you can get a picture into it um, but what do you see coming in terms of artificial intelligence obviously it's that's all over the news right now um, and I've been talking to some other people who are doing work on just animal communication and, and using artificial intelligence. With respect to birding, how do you see that impacting things going forward? Um, and, you know, potentially from a user's perspective, how that could, could help, if anything? Um, well, about the only application of artificial intelligence I'm aware of is like you say with Merlin and um, a little more background on Merlin. Merlin is a smartphone app developed by Cornell Lab of Ornithology uh, based on eBird. You know, they're the people behind eBird as well, uh, based on all this eBird data they have. And it started as kind of a modest, just beginner's aid tool for identifying birds where it would ask you questions about the bird you saw and it would use the seat, the time and time of year and your location to help you narrow down what bird you saw. Then they added like, you know, can try to identify a photo that you put into it of the bird. Um, they added more information, information like range maps and descriptions and sounds where you can just play sounds, you know, for each bird. So it grew into its own field guide app that's as good as the other leading field guide apps out there. Um, and, um, uh, oh, yeah, one of the things I love about it is the range maps usually don't stop at the Rio Grande Valley. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, people ask you, well, where does that bird go in the winter? Um, most North American field guides, you don't know. You know, they they just show you, well, this is its North American range, but the Merlin range maps will often show you where it goes in the Southern Hemisphere as well. Um, so, um, you know, a few other apps uh, had tried to start to identify bird sounds um, and none of them did a really good job. Um, uh, a friend of mine had one called Song Sleuth that she would bring on bird walks just to make fun of it, you know, because it was wrong so often. <laughs> um, so Merlin, they just kind of announced a couple years ago Oh, by the way, we added sound identification. No big deal. And it was better than any other yeah. app that had tried it yet. Um, I think it's great. Um, uh, I uh, it's it's a huge help um, to bird to birding by ear. Uh, you know, it's as much as that little bird pod thing helped me. I think Merlin will help people like ten times more. Um, uh, I've heard concerns of other people um, that I've, I've heard concerns from other birders that they've seen uh, beginning birders or even non-birders just trusting it, you know, implicitly and arguing with experienced birders, you know, Merlin said it was this. Um, and, you know, there's maybe there's something implicitly more trust, you know, intuitively more trustworthy when you see it printed on an app, you know, 
Um, and it's really cool the way it listens, you know, it's uh, in real time, it will display the name of the species that it hears, uh, and it'll keep the list uh, in, in, and it's recording the sound too. You can save the recordings and it will have all the birds that it thinks were on that list. Um, but the best way to use it, I think, is to try to um, find that bird that it says you're hearing um, and verify that it's out there. Um, and um, I even know a, a birder who's lost a lot of hearing, you know, in his old age that um, uses Merlin, that feature of Merlin now as kind of a substitute for the hearing he lost. Mm. And he doesn't trust it, you know, but he knows to maybe look for these birds, you know, that he might, his hearing can't pick up on, but Merlin picked up on it and he'll, he won't put it immediately on his eBird list, but he'll look for those birds and often find them that he wouldn't have seen otherwise, you know. I've uh, tried to fool it a few times by making some calls and Cardinal and it, it, it registers human voice. Most of the time I have fooled it oh, on, yeah. on crow calls a few times, which I was kind of proud of, but oh, cool. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That my wife makes fun of me for trying to, but yeah, the, it'll be interesting to see where all this goes because um, a couple of guys I've had some contacts and working with a little bit, George Buman, who's with Yellowstone Institute, and he really is an animal communication expert. He's writing a book and a colleague of his is using AI to interpret uh, parrot, titmice, and chickadee uh, calls. And I think in the future, we'll see these where it not only recognizes calls, but will tell you much more about behavior, you know, maybe what that bird's actually doing potentially and what this specific call means. And it'll be really interesting to see where that goes, which is exciting. You know, like everything else with technology, there's can be downsides. And, you know, I could also see, you know, people maybe misusing it, trying to call birds in and, you know, uh, get other birds to come in, which is already happening anyway, as you well know, but I'm sure it'll get more sophisticated. So it, it will yeah. be interesting to see where uh, all that yeah. goes. I'm wondering also if maybe AI will be, take a larger part in data analysis, you know, just the huge volume of data that iNaturalist and eBird both have now. Um, you know, just finding patterns. I don't know. I'm sure it will. Maybe. And I know, I know some of these individuals are already working on that and yeah. yeah, they say they're making advances already. So that's, that's definitely coming. Well, Michael, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Uh, you have a lot of insights. Um, if you want to find Michael, he's got a website birding on Broadmead. Um, if you're down in the Austin area and he happens to be doing a, a walk, I highly recommend it. Um, and really appreciate your time and, uh, thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. I, uh, I haven't been as active as I've been in previous years, but, um, one of the new things, kind of new things I've been doing is leading a birding by ear workshop for our local Travis Audubon society. Whenever I can, you know, on the calendar, a single morning activity that's been really satisfying and a lot of uh, people seem to like it. So, um, uh, check, you know, you can check uh, Travis Audubon's calendar for that if you're in the Austin area. And uh, yeah, thanks, Lee. This has been a lot of fun talking about my favorite stuff. Well, great. Um, and I look forward to doing some more, uh, especially now pandemics over doing some more birding with you, get my kids out there with you. So yeah, sounds great. Okay. All right. Take care.